0: Hello and welcome to the Switch Your Money On podcast from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at HL. And as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. And Sarah, I think whether your January was uh, dry, wet or just really, really cold, it does finally appear to be in the rearview mirror doesn't it with some tiny hints of spring on the way but it's that time of year when I am actually pleased I did take 10 minutes to shove a few bulbs in and I mean 10 minutes that bag of bulbs was sitting glaring at me for months in the autumn before I finally got round to it Monty Don or Charlie Dimmock I am not but now those green shoots do make me feel a little bit more optimistic a brighter days ahead.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm very impressed with your gardening prowess. I'm, I have to say I'm definitely more of a sort of buy a ready-made pot kind of a person than a seed fan. But it does seem as though it's going to take some time before the economy emerges from the freeze, especially given that interest rates are still on the up and business activity fell at the fastest rate for two years in January. Now, companies blamed interest rates, falling consumer confidence and strikes for the slowdown. Yeah, and it does seem that plenty of businesses are skating on
0: some pretty thin ice at the moment, with the most recent Bank of England's financial stability report showing that a number of businesses are struggling with cash flow, have weak
1: profits and some pretty hefty loans. And the HL Savings and Resilience Barometer shows that one in five of us are getting into deeper debt than we were this time last year. And of course, that housing market is starting to wobble like a jelly on a plate. At the same time, though,
0: expectations for the year ahead improved in January from a low in October after inflation started to come down and hopes started to rise about the global economic picture. So what does all of this mean for the financial institutions who are in the business of lending us money or getting us to invest in savings or bonds? Well, that's what we're going to focus on in this podcast in an episode we're calling
1: Banking on a Recovery. We've got the boss of ns i on the podcast today, that's National Savings and Investments, and which is backed by the UK Treasury. We'll be talking all things bonds from premium bonds to green bonds. But here to unpick what's going on is the boss himself, Ian Athley. Hi, Ian, how are you?
2: Hi, Sarah. I'm delighted to be with you today. I'm really pleased to be able to talk to you and to talk to the listeners of your podcast.
1: That's great. We look forward to finding out a lot more later in the podcast. Plus, Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst, will be here to give us the lowdown on the challenges and opportunities facing some of the biggest banking names in the business. And we'll
0: also be unpicking how banks fit into sustainable investment strategies with our ESG expert, Laura Hoy, who's with us now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to consider for the banking sector, and we'll be looking into some of those concerns.
1: And as usual, Emma Wall, our head of investment analysis and research, will be here. She'll be chatting to Nick Shenton, Artemis Income Fund Manager at Artemis Fund Managers. Plus, listen on to find out why your pennies stretch further in McDonald's in the UK than they do in the US. And it's not because you get more chicken nuggets,
0: but listen on anyway. And we're going to first dig a little bit deeper into what's been going on with our pennies and pounds, savings accounts and mortgages by delving into the banking sector. It seems the cost-of-living crisis is encouraging a surge in current account switching. Lured by the offer of cash bonuses, insurance deals or bigger overdrafts, a record number of people switched accounts between October and December. More account holders moved their custom to a different bank in the final three months of last year than any other quarter since the seven-day switching service, known as CAS, launched in 2013. A £200 cash bonus is certainly an incentive when other household costs are rising so dramatically.
1: Yes, just over 370,000 people switched current accounts in the final quarter of last year. But that still represents just a tiny drop in the ocean when you look at how many current accounts there are open in the UK. That's more than £75 last year, according to Mentel. Other cast data shows that the beneficiaries of
0: this switching surge are Santander, HSBC and challenger banks Monzo and Starling. But still, it seems traditional banks are continuing to dominate the market. The top six banking groups and providers hold a whopping
1: 87% share of the UK current account market. Yes, and people still seem particularly hesitant to switch their savings accounts too to get a better deal. So even though interest rates have been rising, saving rates on offer have lagged, but they have been catching up. And yet people either seem too busy or too worried about moving their money pots. It looks like saving rates may have peaked as they've been coming down ever so slightly, partly because the Bank of England's rate hikes are expected to stop once the benchmark rate hits around 4.5%, so it could be timely to consider switching before they fall further. But it is always worthwhile to shop around different providers for better savings rates, even after the marketplace has reached the peak. And the big banks
0: haven't had to work as hard to attract our money as they already have some pretty hefty buffers. And it means that as the base rate has gone up, net interest margins, that's the difference between the rate banks off on all sorts of loans and savings rates, what it has to pay out,
1: has been widening and that's been good for profit. But interest rates are rising to squeeze demand out of the economy and lower inflation. But that's expected to push the UK into recession, although it's expected to be milder than previously feared. And this raises the spectre of loans going bad. So in the Bank of England's most recent report into financial stability, it flagged that households were being squeezed by the cost of living crisis and rising mortgage payments, though it underlined that they aren't as vulnerable as during the great financial crisis of 2007 to 2008. And as yet, widespread signs of financial difficulty among UK households with Dead, haven't emerged. Yes, it's a similar picture on the corporate landscape as well, with lots of business
0: entering this pretty stressful period in quite a resilient position, even though there'll
1: be pockets of companies with low liquidity, weak profitability, or who have borrowed significant amounts. So, what impact does the current economic climate and our spending and investment habits have on NSNI (National Savings and Investments), which is backed by the UK Treasury? Well, Ian Ackley is with us, and he's the head of NSNI, so he's the person to ask. So, Ian, I suppose the most well-known of your products might be the premium bonds, and we've seen some real rises in the price fund recently. Can you explain some of the thinking behind this?
2: Yes, you're right. Um, we probably are most famous for our premium bonds. And it's a product that's been around for over 65 years. Uh, And we've actually increased the prize fund rate on that four times in the last year. And it's currently at approximately 3.15%, which is the highest it's ever been for the last 14 years, and actually triple where it was in, in May 2022. It just reflects the fact that interest rates overall have been rising in the savings market on the back of the Bank of England increasing base rate.
1: The odds of a a win itself haven't changed, have they? Because you've changed the way the prizes are sort of structured in terms of the smaller prizes and the bigger ones. Can you talk me through that?
2: We've kept the odds of winning at 24,000 to 1 when we recently increased the prize fund rate. But what we have done is increase the number of prizes worth £50 to £100,000. And that's really an important move. And it's a lot about just giving people bigger prizes. And I think sort of reflects the fact that people love to win on premium bonds, but they love to win big even more. And so this is very much around giving people that opportunity to have a a bigger prize uh, when they do win. Sometimes we'll increase the odds, sometimes we won't. At the moment, as I say, we've gone for more bigger prizes. And I think those have been paid out in February, and we paid out seventy-five percent more prizes in the fifty to one hundred pound bracket than we've had before. So that's a really, really big increase. And prizes between five grand and hundred grand have more than tripled since January.
1: And has inflation kind of played a part in your thinking there? That maybe the sort of the twenty-five pound prize isn't what it used to be, and and people are more attracted by that fifty and hundred.
2: I think it has been a case that um, people love winning prizes I say whenever they can but certainly with rising inflation increasing the number of larger prizes we have helps with the idea that it is something special it's it's a real a real win for people.
1: So I suppose if if we take a bit of a step back then so I mean I think some people see it as a bit of a dark art how you sort of set the interest rates on all your products can you take me through some of the thinking that you go through when when you're making decisions about that?
2: Yes, there's, there's really three things that we're trying to do when we're setting our interest rates on all our products. And it's really about balancing the interest of the taxpayer, who's effectively paying the interest, the customers who are receiving it, but also the overall market. So we look very carefully at the competitors and, and where they have pitched their equivalent products. And what we're trying to do is strike a point in the market where we're not disrupting what's going on, but as I say, we're giving a good return for customers and a good return for taxpayers. And that does mean that we're rarely at the top of the tables, but we think we're striking a fair balance for everybody who's involved in it.
1: One time when that sort of bucked the trend a bit was during the pandemic, when um, NS and I were offering sort of market leading rates. Can you explain a little bit about about that sort of thinking as well?
2: Yes, that was a very different situation. And the reason that we raise money is to to help fund everything that the government does. So every year we get a target, the increase in the size of the customer savings that we have uh, that the government requires each year. And so that's part of what we're managing. And during the COVID crisis, the government needed an awful lot more money than it had had before. And we were asked how much more we could raise. What we did was effectively held our rates. And as a consequence of that, as competitors cut theirs, our rates rose to the top of the table. That enabled us to raise uh, over 38 billion pounds in the first six months of the COVID crisis, which is about equivalent to what the government actually spent on the furlough scheme during that time.
1: In terms then of the raft of ns i products, I mean, one of the newcomers is the Green Bond, which is offering something a bit different. Can you explain a little bit about that?
2: This is a product which we launched in October uh, over a year ago and is all about giving consumers an opportunity to invest in the green investments that the government is, is making. So it goes towards a whole range of green government projects from clean transport, energy efficiency, renewable energy. And it's all about helping the UK economy make that green transition to net zero. It's unique in our suite because it is linked specifically to one particular area of government expenditure. Everything else that's invested with NSNI goes effectively into everything that's done. But this is very carefully targeted on those green investments. And so it is the very first green sovereign savings product uh, that was launched in the world. So it's always fun to have a brand new product. And it's been quite an adventure for us. We've had to learn about the green market. It is a different market, but I'm very proud that we've had the opportunity to launch it.
0: How important is it, Ian, for you to be transparent about the projects being supported by it?
2: That's really important, and I think that's a concern for a lot of consumers, is that there's quite a few green products that are launched and the question marks are raised as to whether they're genuinely invested uh, in green projects. And I'm very proud of the transparency that's related to this product, In September last year, the government published the Green Finance Allocation Report, which was the first one of the reports to report after a year of having green products available. And that identified the specific projects that were being backed by not only the investments in the green savings Bond, but also something called the Green Gilt, which is a product that's sold by another part of government to the big institutions. And between those two, the government raised about $16 And that has gone into specific projects. And so that's all absolutely crystal clear set out for customers to be able to see uh, where all that money that was raised has gone. It's going into making transport cleaner, into renewable energy, promoting that over the use of fossil fuels, preventing pollution and helping people use energy in a more efficient way as well. There's a couple of other areas as well which are around protecting natural resources and also adapting to a changing climate. So those are the sorts of projects that the money is going into. It's a really exciting opportunity for many people who want to be able to make an investment which they can be sure is going into a genuinely green project.
0: So are sales of green bonds going as you expected?
2: When we launched the product, As I say, it was brand new. It was unique in the market. There were some other green uh, savings institutions that existed, but there wasn't a government-backed green savings product. So it's very difficult to know exactly what sort of return customers would expect on a product like that. So we did price it very cautiously initially because we wanted to make sure as many people as possible who really wanted to, to buy a green product could buy a green product. Uh, and then we have progressively increased the rate on it. And that's partly also because of Bank of England rates have been going up as well. And therefore, we've had to rate the rate on the product. And we've upped the rate from 3% to 4.2% in recognition of the fact that interest rates across the market have risen. So it's sold as we expected it would sell. Uh, And we will continue to review the rate on it, trying to strike that balance of getting customers in, but not wishing to damage the existing players in the market. Yeah, we want to pay a fair rate of return for the customers, something which isn't too onerous on the taxpayer, but also crucially, isn't undermining the rest of the green savings market because we're really keen for the green savings market. Uh, to flourish as well. So it is a balancing act between those. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the way the, uh, the product is, is selling at the moment.
1: So obviously, when you're looking for the balance of different rates, it, it does come across that your um, junior ISA rate sort of tends to be something that, that tends to be priced quite competitively. Is there sort of a conscious effort that you're trying to ensure that you're getting sort of NS&I customers as young as possible?
2: With the junior ISA, absolutely, it is a way of bringing in younger people. We are committed strategically to inspiring a stronger savings culture in the UK. And I think one of the ways we can achieve that is by encouraging young people to save in particular. And we've got a fantastic loyal customer base of, of over 25 million customers. And they cover the broad demographic of the UK, all ages, all different backgrounds. But... A lot of those customers have been with us for a very long time and we have to keep refreshing the customer base. So it's really important that we keep bringing in more younger customers as our older customers leave us. And that's why we try and ensure the junior ISA is competitive. It's also true that a couple of years ago, we reduced the minimum investment in premium bonds from £100 to £25. And again, the reason for doing that was to make them more accessible to more people because it was a recognition of the fact that not everyone can put £100 in one go into a savings product. And hence, we reduced it to 25. We also, in that case, opened it up so that it wasn't just grandparents and parents that could buy for children. We also enabled anybody to buy for any child. Uh, And that was very much about trying to create that stronger savings culture by making sure that more children grow up with a savings product. Uh, And therefore, hopefully, when they get older and they have their own money, they will continue to save. And I think that's, that's really important because having a a little nest egg somewhere, a little pot of money just in case in an emergency is really important for all of us. And if children can grow up with that and use the idea of having one, then hopefully they'll carry that through the rest of their lives too.
1: Well, here's, here's hoping you're building lots of, of mini savers. So <laughs> thank you very much, Ian.
2: Thank you very much indeed.
1: I should also add that these are the views of the interviewee and aren't a recommendation to buy any product. Let's find
0: out what the current climate means now for some of the biggest banking names in the business and bring in Sophie Lungates, our lead equity analyst who's been exploring the conditions for some listed financial businesses. So, Sophie, to kick off with, you've been looking at an international giant with
4: close ties to home. Yes, I've been looking at UK-listed HSBC, which, although it has its home in London, is very much tied to Asia in terms of where its revenue and profits come from. Now, there are a few things to consider, HSBC has seen a 12% rally in the last month as the market became excited at news of China reopening, which has real benefits for HSBC and other Asia-facing banks. Really, that brings me on to my next point, which is that HSBC has two clear growth levers at its disposal in the current environment. Now, with interest rates higher than they have been and further increases expected, this improves banks' ability to profit on their interest income products, so loans and mortgages to you and me. This is something I expect to benefit HSBC, but the bank also has big exposure to non-interest income, so banking products that aren't tied to interest rates. That's things like wealth management services or investment banking commission, trading fees and the likes. Now, HSBC is spending $6 billion through to around 2027 in these alternative areas, and the reopening of Hong Kong's borders unlocks a lot of wealth management potential in the short term. It's also worth pointing out that back in November, HSBC announced the sale of its Canadian business for $10.1 billion. This improved the bank's capital position and gives it options. There are hopes this sum could result in a special dividend or share buyback, but this isn't guaranteed. The biggest thing to consider in terms of risk for HSBC is economic risk. Now, the bigger exposure to Asia is a benefit in many ways, but the outlook is hard to predict and can be more volatile. So that increases the chance of ups and downs.
1: And what about a bank with a bit more of a domestic UK focus?
4: I've also been looking at Lloyds Banking Group, which you can think of as a bread and butter bank. It's very reliant on traditional banking, like those loans, mortgages, easy access accounts and credit cards. I've talked about Lloyds before, so I won't go into too much detail. But essentially, higher interest rates are an especially useful development for a bank like this. Lloyds is throwing a lot of money at a bit of a strategic pivot, which will see it earn more money on things like fees rather than interest. But for now, it's net interest margins, which is the difference between what a bank earns in interest and pays on deposits, that are the key metric to watch where Lloyd's is concerned. There are no huge warning signs for Lloyd's in this area, but I would say that it's very cyclical. Um, So it tends to track the UK economy and the incoming recession risk is reflected in a valuation that's a little way below the long term average.
0: And finally, Sophie, you've been looking at another financial giant that's not quite a bank,
4: haven't you? Yes, I've been looking at Visa, which announced its results recently. So despite appearances, Visa isn't a credit card company. It doesn't lend consumers money or run accounts, so it's not on the hook for money if a customer defaults. Instead, Visa charges banks for transferring funds. Service revenues are charged to card issuers and are calculated based on the value of the transactions. Data processing revenues depend on the number of transactions that take place and are charged to the bank of both the customer and the receiving business. Cross border transactions come with additional fees and currency conversion revenues, and this area of the business is enjoying a rebound as travel resumes and China reopens. What really helps Visa stand out is its business model. Um, Additional transactions are virtually costless, so extra revenue turns straight into profit. Capital expenditure is limited, meaning profits convert well into cash. Of course, the reverse is also true, so short-term revenue falls have a direct effect on profit. The most recent results show that consumer spending is holding up, um, but it's important to note that there's still expectations of a slowdown, and a sharp downturn would dent transaction volumes, even if it doesn't face the same challenges as traditional banks. Certainly wants to keep a watch on. OK, Sophie, thanks very much. So let's get a wider perspective about the issues at
1: stake when looking at banks from an environmental, social and governance perspective. It's a good time to bring in our ESG analyst, Laura Hoy. So Laura, apart from the macroeconomic headwinds
0: facing the banking sector, there are some other risks to be aware of, aren't there, Laura?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of people make the mistake of assuming ESG is a sort of catch-all term for being environmentally friendly, and that's part of it, but it's also about being a good corporate citizen and how that could impact long-term financial performance. Don't forget, there are two other letters in that acronym, S for social and G for governance. And for banks, it's actually governance, which is essentially how they're run, that's historically been the biggest ESG risk. Now, because of the nature of the business, issues like market manipulation, tax evasion, and corruption really loom large over the industry. Uh, for example, right now, there's a heightened risk for sanctions evasion for banks that have exposure to Russia. And these sorts of business ethics breaches are not only the most frequent ESG risks, they also tend to be the most severe. On top of the reputational damage that comes with an ethical misstep, there are often huge financial consequences that weigh on the bottom line for years.
0: So Laura, how do you spot banks with lower risks in that area?
3: Well, banks with the best reputations tend to be those with good regulatory relationships and transparent policies. But things like location are also a factor. Banks based in the U.S., for example, have a higher risk profile when it comes to product governance, and that's because consumer lawsuits are just more frequent. Now, more recently, alongside these governance considerations, environmental concerns have really come to the fore for banks. People are starting to take environmental credentials into account before making their lifestyle or financial decisions, and that's led to some banks promoting themselves as a more sustainable option. But with anti-greenwashing legislation in the pipeline— banks are going to have to prove that they're making good on these promises or risk getting stung for misleading customers.
0: So this really is a complex sector to analyse, isn't it? I mean, the banks themselves might reduce their carbon footprint and treat their employees fairly, but the projects they finance could be more controversial.
3: Yeah, you're right there. And it's an issue that's playing out right now at some of the world's biggest banks. Despite their commitments to support a global effort towards net zero, a lot of banks are still lending to fossil fuel companies. And in many cases, that money goes toward the development of new sites. Now, this is something that sort of flies in the face of the International Energy Agency's guidance, which said no new oil fields should be developed from 2021 onward if we're going to hit net zero. By 2050. But a lot has changed over the past two years. Concerns about energy security, given the war in, in Ukraine, means we haven't really stuck to that guidance. The other side of that argument is this kind of investment is inevitable as we look for a short-term solution to plug the supply gap. And for some banks, the exposure to fossil fuel lending is largely dependent on where they operate. Standard Chartered, for example, has been pulled out as one of the biggest UK lenders backing coal power expansion. But this is in part due to the bank's large presence in Asia, where coal is still a big part of the energy mix. The sticking point here is really whether banks are being transparent about their involvement in this kind of investment. Can you really claim to have sustainability as a key priority when a huge part of your operation is reliant on detrimental activities?
1: So part of the problem is regulation, isn't it? So it's unclear exactly how banks are meant to quantify their impact if they're looking outside their organisation.
3: Yeah, exactly. And that's part of what makes this aspect such a huge business risk for the sector. New regulations are on the horizon, and they're going to require big companies to disclose scope 3 emissions. Now, for banks, that would mean the emissions generated by the projects they finance. Including this class of emissions could drastically change the credibility of a bank's net zero pledge, and it opens the door for greenwashing accusations. Outside of the potential reputational and regulatory risks that stem from greenwashing, there are business risks as well. It's important for investors to fully understand how reliant on fossil fuels a bank has become if they're going to make a long-term investment decision. If net zero really is the direction of travel over the next 20 years – banks with the majority of their income tied to oil and coal have a real risk of being left out in the cold following the energy transition. By disclosing that information clearly, investors can more accurately consider that risk.
0: Really interesting to take all of this on board, Uh, Laura. Thanks very much for
1: that insight. And with one eye on the future, we can bring in Emma Wall now. Our head of investment analysis and research, who's been talking to Nick Shenton, manager of the Artemis Income Fund at Artemis Fund Managers.
5: Hi
6: Nick. Hi Emma. How are you?
5: I'm very well, thanks. How are you?
6: Very good, thank you.
5: So we're here today to talk about banks and financial services. I thought we'd start by talking about the relationship between banks' revenues, that's the money that come into banks. And interest rates, because while for many people, higher interest rates are a bad thing, which stops them growing, for banks, actually, it can be a positive thing in terms of the bottom line, can't it?
6: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. The last 10 years of very low interest rates have really been a major headwind for banks to face into. And the simple rule of thumb is higher interest rates should broadly translate through to higher profits for banks.
5: And does that mean you're optimistic about the outlook for banks from an investment point of view in 2023?
6: I think on balance, yes, we, we are looking at uh, the landscape for banks and we're more optimistic about the potential for, for profit growth and distributions for, uh, to the owners of the business in the form of dividends. And it's not just this year. Uh, our average holding period is, is north of six years and we tend to look out and try and forecast cash flows three, four, five years ahead. And what we can see is actually that there's a a rolling period of an uplift in profitability for the banks that's coming. And that's because during the pandemic, they were reinvesting effectively at at 0% interest rates uh, on their own capital. And as that long-term hedging rolls off, there's a mathematical uplift which should persist not just through 2023, but indeed 2024 and 2025, which really fits with this background that the banks are, are run pretty sensibly and arguably conservatively for the benefit of, of all stakeholders. And that's as a result of a change in regulation, which is much more long-term thinking and arguably in some senses positively demanding for society.
5: Now, you mentioned the regulator there, and you've also mentioned dividends, obviously, because you're an income fund manager and the pandemic. I think it's probably just worth revisiting that period because, as you mentioned, in the pandemic, banks reinvested. And that's because the regulator encouraged them not to pay a dividend because of the economic outlook, you know, the lockdown impact on the global economy and how that had impacted kind of other sectors and other individuals. As we look at the economic outlook for 2023, it's not exactly, or should we say gilded, (laughs) How much do you consider whether the regulator will put similar restraints or encourage similar dividend cutting in the financial services sector this year?
6: We think the environments are probably different. Uh, and that's because the pandemic, let's hope, was genuinely a one in 100 year event. Um, what we're facing into now is a, a pretty well telegraphed and understandable slowdown or recession from a, a normalization of interest rates, we think the banks are in a pretty strong position on the amount of capital they hold. And that's really been 10, 12 years in the making. Um, by international standards and by historical standards, they've got very strong capital positions. And, and the cash conversion, the, the profits that can be distributed to shareholders r- remain pretty strong. Um, So we would be extremely surprised if there were um, a challenge to the dividends uh, paid by banks. Indeed, it looks as though on uh, on, on a basis of analysing last year's numbers, the, the distributions to shareholders were the biggest they'd been in a decade. In fact, probably as big as the previous decade combined, which just shows the the strength of of the bank's balance sheets. And that in in no small part is due to the regulatory uh, framework that's been put in place over the past decade.
5: And in the UK, broadly, banks fall into two camps, and that is the international-focused ones, those with revenues that are global, such as HSBC and Standard Chartered. And then you have the ones which are much more geared towards and their revenues come from the UK consumer. Do you have a preference between those two groups?
6: Well, you correctly identify that they have uh, different characteristics in terms of uh, where they operate their businesses. Uh, And yes, you you might say that Lloyds and NatWest and Barclays are more domestic focused and HSBC and Standard Chartered are international um, uh, plays, uh, primarily Asia. We'd assess them on their own merits, but what really stands out to us for the the bank sector in aggregate is it looks to us like the backdrop, the landscape in which they're operating, recessions aside, is improved versus the past 10 years because they've built up their capital positions. The cultures have shifted probably for the better, they're more conservatively run. The cash conversion is higher because they're not paying out PPI fines, for example, and the interest rate environment is better for them as businesses around the world. So we wouldn't really draw a distinction between the dividends and the distributions that are available to shareholders within those banks. It looks like investors are pretty sceptical about the ability of them to distribute as much as it looks like they are going to do. But clearly there's different characteristics in terms of the business model. What we'd say about the UK banks is They're pretty conservatively and sensibly managed. And your primary exposure is on mortgages. And if you were to take NatWest, the average loan to value is around 50%. So it's a pretty conservatively financed book of business.
0: Nick, thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. Well, that was Nick Shenton there from Artemis Fund Managers talking to Emma Wall. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And now it's time for Stat of the Week. And we're actually going to serve up a couple of numbers for you. First up, before we talk Big Macs, I know you're salivating, Sarah, right now. uh, But here's a stat you might not know about the proportion of retail investors as opposed to institutional investors on the stock market. Did you know individual retail investors hold around 15% of UK-listed shares? And interestingly, this came up as we've launched a new electronic voting service. The idea is that more investors who hold shares on our platform can be active shareholders more easily as it allows shareholders to vote and attend meetings virtually like AGMs relating to their shareholdings via their HL account. And it should give investors a greater say on the governance of these companies.
1: And finally, The Economist has brought back its Big Mac index. So this was a concept made up by the editorial team at the magazine as a fun way of assessing whether currencies are trading at the correct level. So it's based on purchasing power parity and the expectation that over time, exchange rates should move towards the rate that would make the price of a certain product, in this case, a Big Mac, identical in two countries. So that's the overview. But now I'm
0: going to ask you, Sarah, what you think the price of a Big Mac is here in the UK because I know you haven't actually looked in detail yet at these numbers.
1: <laughs> um, I don't know. I've, I honestly, being I've been vegetarian for such a long time now, I couldn't remember what it tastes like let alone what it costs. So I'm going to go. I don't know, three pounds. It's actually three seventy
0: nine on average in Britain, though not at an overpriced motorway service station, of course. But in the US, it's five dollars thirty six. Now, the implied exchange rate there is 0.71, but the actual exchange rate is around 0.83. Obviously, it fluctuates. But it does suggest the pound, according to The Economist, is around 13% undervalued. And you may scoff, but the Big Mac index
1: is used as a benchmark around the world and used to teach economic theory. (laughs) So Big Macs are big news in schools, which I suppose makes a change from all that talk about turkey twizzlers in schools.
0: It certainly does. But you know what? It doesn't matter how much we bang on about healthy eating.
1: They always seem to want to take away. Well, that's all from us this time. But before we go, we need to remind you that this was recorded on the 6th of February, 2023. And the interview with Ian was recorded on the 7th of February, 2023. All information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. This is not a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any
0: investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors
1: should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However,
0: HL has put controls in place including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers
1: to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Laura, Sophie, Ian, Nick, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hotson. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.